Welcome to What's Your Beef? Each week, we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? Today we're chatting to Lucinda Corrigan, a seed stock and genetics producer from southern New South Wales. And Lucinda, if I'm really honest with you, I feel like that's a bit of a cop-out on a job title. You've got many and varied roles and responsibilities. Well, well, when you've been around a long time, lots of things happen. Oh. <laughs> well, look, we'll touch on some of them a bit later, but, you know, um, it's always good to start at the beginning and, you know, as a, as a long-term, you've, you've already said it yourself, member of the agricultural community, how did you first get that passion for um, producing and being in the bush? Thanks, Jane. I grew up on a, a sheep station in, in, in the Western Riverina, um, out on what was, is called the Hay Plains and uh, was, was educated by my, my mother for the first four years before a local school opened. And so we, we were right on the edge of what was developed in the early 1960s, which was the Collyambi Irrigation Area. So watched the arrival of water onto that country and then the establishment of the rice industry. I mean, so many interesting things happened. Went through, you know, the downturn of the early 70s, uh, as I was finishing school in 1974, so I wondered, oh, how can I plot my way back to the land, which was, <laughs> sounds a bit cute now, but it wasn't quite so obvious no. for women in, And once it's time. in your blood, it's there. You can't, you can't, you know, avoid it, can you? Yeah, definitely. We had another hiccup in the family. My father died in 1969, so my mother was a city girl and she went back to Sydney. So I spent some years in Sydney finishing school and went to Sydney University and studied agriculture. And then I thought, right, I'll be right now and I'll go and <laughs> um, land the job of my dreams and so on. So really, uh, yeah, crafted. I suppose crafted it as I went along. <laughs> and that's exactly how it happened, I'm sure, you know, just went and landed your dream job. What I find most interesting when um, when I hear of you, Lucinda, is that, you know, you've had such a varied Career and I think you know from uh, Ar- Argyle, I'm pretty sure, wasn't it? Fine, fine fibre industry and goat production, and now you run a really successful and high end Angus beef cattle um, business. So how how did that progress, going from from goats to to Angus beef? I developed a real interest in genetics at university. Was really always interested in livestock across the board. So came from a, a sheep background landed this job in the goat industry at the beginning of the 80s after finishing uni, worked in the goat industry during the 80s. So that was a, that was a pretty um, – it was a time when everybody talked about diversification, all sorts of new industries started, some didn't go on, and goats were sort of part of that sort of diversification mantra of the 80s. So I was incredibly lucky. I was appointed CEO of an emerging association for the cashew industry and um, yeah, got lots of experience running the council, speaking at field days all over Australia, etc. Then when I um, met Brian and settled here at Remy Lee, uh, he, was, uh, he had merino sheep and cattle, Angus cattle, so that sort of became, you know, my gig then. And uh, although I had goats, uh, I did disperse my flock in, uh, after three children were born, just trying to keep the balls in the air. So 
yeah, just really have covered the length and breadth of livestock. And recently, I've been on a dairy board, which is the genetic improvement in the dairy industry, a company called Data Gene. So I've been lucky to sort of cover livestock pretty, um, you know, comprehensively over those years. And why was livestock such? Um, why did you choose livestock? What made it the the go to option? Oh no! Well, livestock production is so interesting when you think about you think about all the you know the productivity issues like nutrition or genetics or animal health and welfare, through to um, you know trying to manage the landscape so that we have um, a sustainable production system, through to the product, of course, and the consumer, which is a very important part of of what we do. There's just so many challenges, and there's a lot of depth and interest. And now I have, you know, two children working with us in the business and they're as, they're as interested as we are and it's infectious. <laughs> and we, we're lucky to have a young team also that are, are also equally motivated. So it's kind of contagious, the, the interest you develop and then, um, you know, working and and I guess if you, if you can be, you know, make it successful, then it, that it, that it sort of it, it, it sort of grows on its own behalf. Wonderful. Well, look, we'll we'll come back to the family business in a little bit. I just before moving on to a, a couple of other issues, I just want to touch on your many um, industry roles. You know, you've been um, chair of the genetics and breeding unit at UNE and the chair of welfare science centre at the University of Melbourne, uh, former MLA um, NED and chair and. Farmers for Climate Change, you know, the list goes on and on. Commissioner of the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. You know, with three kids, a busy farming business, Lucinda, this is this is a lot to take on. You must be incredibly passionate about some of, you know, the diversification and innovations in the industry. Well, firstly, all those things didn't happen at once. <laughs> it, 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 so, phew. Just, yeah, uh, that's a lot of emails. We'll grab, we'll grab, we'll grab our breath. Um, yeah. So, look. Having come out of running a national organisation, then settling into a farming business, it was clear that the business wasn't big enough to to accommodate both of us full-time in the early 90s. So I started looking for other things and, and then we realised we needed to grow the business. So there's been lots of different parts of it. But I guess I started off working, you know, started my local Lancet group in 1989 and, you know, so have had lots of sort of local, regional and then sort of Moved into some state roles and then and then some national roles. So it, ha- it, it there's been a progression. It hasn't all happened at once. And then I guess if you put your hand up, you know, life life happens for those who who turn up sort of things. So if you keep turning up, interesting things happen. Oh, for sure. What was one of your more interesting roles? And uh, that we, I feel quite bad now having just listed them all off. But it just, <laughs> I found it fascinating because it really is a depth and and varied role. So what was what was the most interesting one that you can think of? Well, I, I don't think I've ever had a job that I haven't said, gosh, I have enjoyed that and I've learned a lot from it. And I suppose that's why I keep doing it because I find I do keep learning, um, you know, a lot about leadership, about um, inspiring others, about uh, working in teams to achieve shared goals. So each, each position has been has added to that for me. And, I, you know, my nine years at Meat and Livestock Australia were a massive highlight. Um, I was fortunate enough to be on the donor company board and uh, chair that for the last few years. And so that was the whole sort of innovation pre and post farm gate and through the supply chain. Just love that work and, and love seeing um, us, us move forward at, you know, at, at a business level and at an, at an industry level. 
you know, develop the new tools and personal capacity that we need to cope with the challenges that we have in, in what are large industries. Massive industries. And I, you've touched on it just there. So innovation that we're seeing in, in modern agriculture, but, you know, the beef industry especially, is, um, is terrific. What's, what's innovation to you? Look, I take a really broad view. So if you look at research and development and our classic view about uh, research, you know, we work, we work on something. We work on solving a problem. We develop a hypothesis and then we go through, you know, an academic process to make sure that we, the solution we have isn't just luck, that it's actually <laughs> going to work. And then, so, that, so innovation includes research and development, but it also, it, it also includes even a change in the way we conduct business. Often, the big transformations that we, we do it at, in a farming system. If you take, and I'll take a good livestock example, if you take the transformation of the, the fat lamb industry, which is what we called it when I was young, to the prime lamb industry today, that's been a whole lot of pieces of discovery that, and of research and of um, people trialing and working out what works. So the development of, of composite sheep and of, um, you know, now they've taken a year out of the the, the female um, reproductive cycle so that we use lamb at 12 months of age. There's been some really major changes and these have all been, this is the process of innovation and people trying and testing in, in, on top of, I guess, the discovery that happens through research and development. And it can also be as simple as just a new way of putting systems together that makes things work better. And with the, with the current sort of development into ag tech and all the digital innovations that we're seeing and, and lots are being trialled and uh, this whole area of, I guess, rapid prototyping, testing of, of ideas. Um, what we're seeing is lots of things are being challenged, new ways of, of solving old problems like robot, robot spraying weeds. You know, we've got an old problem, we need to get rid of our weeds, we've got a new solution. Um, and that, those things are really exciting. That sort of builds on the whole innovation story. Is it hard to say no when you're exposed to so many of these innovations all the time and you know what the goal and purpose of your business is um, and I guess you've got to stop somewhere sometimes. Um, is it hard to say no to just sort of bringing it all home and trying it all out? I think you get better at that in time. So I think um, it's easy. When we're young, <laughs> we are beguiled by all these new gadgets. Um, I think when it get, you, get, you have a certain amount of experience, what you say in your business at a business level is what are the questions I'm asking? Can I can I more monitor my water tanks without driving out there every day? Ah, oh, yes, we've got a, a new a new gadget that you know sends a, a signal to a Bluetooth system back to us, and we, we know there's water there or whatever. So if you're asking the right question, then you'll be adopting or you'll be trialing the right answers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you can't do everything, and that, I think. Developing that sort of judicious assessment is something that you learn by experience and by business analysis. Where's your business up to? What what is it that you need? What is the most important thing for you to solve? And those things fall out of you know good process. And you know you did mention there wasn't room in the business for you both to be employed first, and then you've grown this business to you are now employing. Um, I think there's a team of eight. Yeah. Yep, a team of eight. What is it like growing that business? You and the the purpose behind it. Look, I, I give a lot of the credit to that to my to my spouse and business partner Brian because he has a he has probably a higher appetite for risk than myself, but. 
obviously we had to expand our land area and that has happened over a period of uh, 30, 30 years. Then we've um, we've obviously developed the uh, the business itself so that we can market the cow we produce, and you know, we've, that's been that's been a continuous a continuous process. So we started off um, selling all our bulls by private treaty, for instance. Then we went to on property auctions, but we also sell bulls by contract and release, and we do other things. So we have different channels, but that's developed over. I say instant success takes twenty years. It's developed over a, a period of twenty twenty five years where we're you know, develop the reputation of the business. We've increased the size of the business. When we came out of the millennial drought, so we had a pretty, you know, gruesome experience like a lot of people in southern Australia through from 2002 to 2009. And when we came out of that, we said, oh, gosh, we don't want to do that again. We need to do some things differently. And we were leasing properties and sending cattle away and doing all those things. So we, we took on quite a big expansion in 2010, and that has continued to now. And in that period, two of our children have come home and joined the business. So there's been there's been lots of different parts of it. But I guess I always say I conduct the orchestra, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and help 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 everybody uh, really help everybody member of the team do that do their job. And you were talking about how enthused and how infectious that enthusiasm and passion is, and that that two children have come home to be part of that business. That's a whole um, new wave, I guess, of of energy. How have you harnessed that, and and what's next for the for the business incorporating these new team members? Yes, well, we've. I guess as you grow, you need to formalise some things. So we've had to be become a little bit more formal. And in this process, one of our children has elected. Our middle son has elected to to do other things. So we've we've been able to do the succession piece, and he's he's. Um, has a career as, a, as an engineer, and um, so again, it is it is it is just continuous. Uh, it, it's become clearer that Anthony, our son, who's a mechanic and trained in the mines, he is he's running sort of the operational side of all the pastures and the you know um, facilities. Um, he's he's really developed a lot of skills since he came home about three years ago. Our daughter Ruth uh, also has uh, a degree in. Uh, animal science like myself and she's um, got a real um, appetite and she has a lot of ability in terms of breeding the cattle. So she's taken over breeding the cow herd. So it's about everybody finding, I guess, their, you know, finding the place that suits them in their own uh, journey and um, and then, um, yeah, finding a way to build, I guess, the support team around them. And so for the future, yeah, all well, the future is about handover, I guess, at, at a point in time in, a few, in the next few years. And uh, so that's a, that's a gradual process. Oh, always. Uh, succession planning and, and, you know, that transition is always a long, long process. You've had a long um, career in, in Australian livestock industries. Perspective must come with that. It must. How are you finding just sort of... Not taking a back seat because I don't get that impression from you at all, but I just, you know, being able to, to look at what's going on at a state, national and international level with, with livestock industries at the moment. Look, I think you see, you, see the, you see the cycles and when you've been through a number of cycles, so I could, I, could name, I could name a number of cycles, you know, we've been through high interest rates and I think of when I joined this business, interest rates were 17.5%. I think on our overdraft, um, you know, we've been through. So that's sort of the financial side of the business, you know, and and 
there have been lots of other cycles. We've seen lots of cycles in the, the physical uh, climate. We've certainly seen um, a lot of evidence of a drying climate in this, in this area. And we are in a water source catchment for the Hume Weir, which is a major water storage in, in, on the Murray River. So that's, you know, that's been quite marked. And we've got about 110 years of record data here. So we, because of the, it's been in the family, probably been in the family for a long time, since the 1870s. So we're lucky enough to, to have that sort of long-term view. Um, you see cycles in breeding. It's interesting. We've, we've sort of and separating what I'd call the short-term fads from the long-term. What are, what are the long-term uh, things we need to think about in terms of breeding to meet the needs of the consumer, to um, meet meet the constraints of the environment? You know, we're really keen as a family to to improve our environmental uh, footprint here. I usually call it our hoofprint <laughs> because, you know, we're running a few thousand cattle, so we have a bit of a hoofprint. And so a, a lot of the things we're doing are about developing a more sustainable farming system. Um, so, yeah, you do – I think you get a better head to assess uh, the opportunities because there's lots, there's lots happening all the time. When I joined the Kashmir fibre industry in my early 20s, and uh, I was lucky enough to work with a international company called Dawson International, who were based in Scotland, and they had all the they had all the premium brands. And this was sort of pre the days of fibre processing being done in China. So it was just at the end of that sort of the reign of the sort of the great Scottish companies, Pringles, Glenmax, and so on. The chairman was a gentleman called Sir Alan Smith who had flown Spitfires in the Second World War. And he was he was a marvellous and remarkable, you know, leader. And he said to me many, many times, you know, and he was elderly by this stage, but, but, but really sharp. He said, Lucinda, opportunity pauses. It does not stop. And so I think it's all about, oh, gosh, you know, where is the opportunity? Can, can, we, can we grab it as it flies by sort of thing without, as you sort of suggested before, getting, I guess, overtaken by, you know, Things that are being presented to you that perhaps aren't going to make any difference to your to your situation. So it is developing a, a sort of a, a I guess a finely tuned antenna for what is a good opportunity. I like what you said before about you know working out which things the cycles, but what's fads and what are what are long term you know industry requirements. What do you think the challenges are currently for the for the beef industry, considering there is quite a lot of, you know, international turmoil in the moment through COVID-19 and, and various export markets may, you know, overnight changing remarkably. Well, that's exactly right. And, and hopefully those are short-term blips rather than long-term, I guess, um, crevices for us. Look, I think um, if I were to list sort of the top two or three challenges, I think firstly we have, um, we have much greater scrutiny of what we do. So we have uh, a very um, we we have a I think great leadership in our industry in terms of um, the push to develop sustainability frameworks and just to give an example I'm currently chairing the governance committee for the sheep sustainability framework so this is the wool and sheep meat industry mm-hmm. and they're running a similar process to what Beef did prior to um, Beef Australia in 2018 when they developed their sustainability framework. And so industry is really responding, but that is that that is a really important process that we understand and stay ahead of, I think, and determine our own future. I'm an optimistic person, so I think the really good thing that's come out of this pandemic is that people have suddenly woken up to the idea that food is 
Yeah, it might be actually essential for life and that a country needs to have control of its food systems. Um, I have heard people say in the past that it doesn't matter if we don't have fresh milk in Australia, we can buy it from New Zealand. And I, I sort of shake my head and think, goodness me, we're mammals. We drink milk. <laughs> How can that be? Um, and I think we, we've had a bit of a wake-up on, on some of those, um, I guess, less caring attitudes from and, and a greater political awareness of how important it is that we guarantee our food. So, yes, I think there's that social licence type of um, scrutiny of our industry, which I'm, I'm really confident we're, we're on on top of, but, but always a challenge. I think then we have um, lots of environmental challenges. I think, um, you know, developing our response to... Uh, you know, decarbonising the world and working out how we how we play and and what we do. So in our farm business here, we are taking part in a pilot for this carbon neutral 2030, which is a major plank of the work that MLA is doing and, and lots of research going on at the moment. And I suppose from from our point of view, I find it very encouraging because we we can look at what we've done, whether it's farming lots of trees over the last 30 years or it's um, making the cattle more productive through the use of genetics and genomics. There's lots of things we can do and we have done. And we think that, you know, carbon neutrality in 2030 is, is achievable by, you know, having the plan and, and doing the investment. That's certainly another major challenge for our for our red meat industry. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, communicating that to the broader, you know, producer base? Because, you know, um, there's always the, the sort of top 10% of producers who are well across all of the innovation and information and research and everything, but there seems to be still quite a, a chunk of producers who may not be as willing to to have their minds swayed. Yes. You know, I was asked that question in my MLA interview in 2007. <laughs> <laughs> These are, and, these, um, these are the cycles, Lucinda. <laughs> these, are, these are the cycles, mm. and there's no doubt that we are, you know, we that we that we keep um, challenging ourselves to work with. I guess, you know, the next perhaps the laggards in our industry. I, I, I think there are a very, um, what I call it, thoughtful group of producers who sit in the middle, who basically say, "Well, I'm going to watch people adopt." And when I know it works, I will do that. Mm. And I think we see that happening over and over again. And I think that's entirely um, reasonable. And, it, and so the leaders and the early adopters go and do those things. And then, you know, that, that sort of middle cohort say, okay, now we know this works. We, we, we're happy to, to, to make the investments or do the changes or whatever we need to do to, to make that work. Oh, look, I think, I think we are challenged by the laggards. I always say when I talk to whoever wants to listen, that, um, you know, not many people leave the city and uh, buy a header and grow wheat. <laughs> they nearly all leave the city and buy a few cows yeah. and enter our industry. And so we have, you know, we, we might, we have, um, on one hand, I guess, traditional laggards, and then we have sort of what I call new entrance laggards, and some of whom know very little about, say, animal health and welfare, which is such a core part of what we do. You know, we say in this business, the animals come first, second, and third. Um, you know, obviously, you know, people having good working conditions and, and is, 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 is very important. But, you know, the animals must be always at the top of the list in terms of their health and welfare. As much as we can do that within our, you know, the team that, that, that works here. Well, I think that comes back into what you were saying about social licence before too because the consumers are becoming more and more savvy and 
we're becoming more and more accountable. You know, there is that responsibility that you have to, well, we seem to have to prove that we put the animals first, more so than ever before. Yeah, yeah. Even though we naturally do, as a generally. Mm, It's a long, long, long distance communication and I think one of the great things about having more women in the industry is I think there's a lot more people who naturally want to communicate these things. Um, I was at a, a function a few years ago and um, the former Minister for Agriculture way back in the 90s, John Karen, said to me, Lucinda, I think you know, women being in the industry is the game changer from my day because if you look at the photos of him with his agro-political leaders in 1989-90, they were all men, of course. Mm. And so, yes, I I do think we have a lot more on our side now. And you think of some of our really great um, young uh, women in the industry, like Catherine Marriott or Kylie Stretton or Deanna Lush down in South Australia. You know, they're in every state, and they're all um, putting their hand up. And it's 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 terrific to see, I guess, a lot more um, outward-facing communication about what we do and how we do it. And, and also how the, where the challenges are. And, and, you know, I always say, well, any way we'll solve our challenges is by being collaborative. We're not going to solve them by being adversarial. Mm, very true. You did touch on some of the, the younger women coming up the ranks in, um, in the beef industry. How important, we, we sort of touched on it then, but the, the messaging and the communication right across the board in all facets of the industry? Oh, I think, look, I think it starts, from a young age, and you know, we have a, a number of uh, initiatives Australia wide. So, we have the Primary Industries Education Foundation of Australia that, um, you know, develops material for I think that's all primary, pre high school, and then there are various other um, organizations and, um, that are developing some material for high school. So, a lot of this is about making sure that agriculture and food production stay mainstream or are more mainstream than that perhaps they are at the moment. I think we have a, we, you know, we have, this will be a challenge that won't go away. So we have to keep, you know, working out new ways of addressing, I guess, that sort of communication challenge without being defensive or especially without being adversarial because I don't think that works at all. And um, so I, you know, I, I think taking, taking opportunities and we see lots of people putting their hands up to take the opportunities to speak with various audiences. And reaching reaching out into uncomfortable audiences. I, I did a gig a couple of years ago. I was asked to go to the Melbourne Festival of Sustainable Living, and being the sort of person I, I am, I said, "Oh yeah, I'll do that." Mm. It turned out it was a very um, well, a vegan type of um, audience, and oh, no. um, it, it was pretty unfriendly actually. And yeah. um, I don't think I, I don't think I've actually ever been booed before. But anyway, oh, no. I finished I finished my ten minutes, and someone booed me. And I sat down and I, I was almost in tears and I thought, oh, God, this wasn't, that wasn't much fun. And you know that over the next three or four days, I received three or four emails from um, young people in the audience who said, gosh, I'm sorry about that rude person and so on and so forth. And I thought, okay, that was worth doing. It wasn't easy. Yeah. But um, I, guess, I guess if you don't, if you're not there, then they don't hear your story. And you know, one of them said, I love hearing about your farm and what you're doing and about the innovation the industry's investing in. So, it's always worth being there, even if it's not apparent at the time. Mm, that's right. Those uncomfortable conversations and uncomfortable audiences are very powerful in the most unexpected of ways. Absolutely. I have a little note here from um, um, producer of the program. How do Betty, Helen and Jill inspire you? Who are Helen, Jill and Betty? So you can imagine, um, you know, I was born in the 1950s, so when I wanted to enter 
um, agriculture, um, who were the female role models that I thought about. And so Betty Archdale was the um, headmistress of the school I went to in Sydney. She'd been captain of the British cricket team. Then she'd come to Australia and she'd been um, director of the Women's College at Sydney University. And then she became headmistress at Abbasley. She was a very inspiring lady. Um, Jill Coe Conway grew up in Western New South Wales, near where I grew up. And she went on to be, she had a very successful academic career in America and became um, chairman. She was the first female chair of a top 20 company in Australia. And And Helen Newton-Turner is someone I knew about all my life. Helen was a secretary to the head of CSIRO in the 1950s. And he suddenly realised that she was quite good at maths. She became Australia's leading quantitative geneticist in sheep and um, went on and had an absolutely astounding career in uh, the sheep, you know, sheep genetics, quantitative genetics in the, in the 60s. And then went on and did a lot of work in the developing world in her retirement. And I suppose the thing I always think about Helen, Becky and Jill is that None of them had children. Two of them didn't marry. Jill married. And I suppose, you know, I, I suppose what I think is how lucky am I that, I've, you know, it's, it's much easier these days to be able to contribute and turn up and also more, much more accepted, <laughs> of course, that <laughs> we have a family. Um, you know, in, in Helen's day, she wasn't even allowed to go to some of the places where the science team met, like the Canberra. Camera Club because she it's, was a it's woman. It's so hard to imagine those boundaries, isn't it? When you... It's so hard. Yeah. And, it's, and it's during my lifetime. So I, they inspire me because they did it despite the obstacles. And so I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I network, of course, with many fabulous um, <laughs> women and men across the industry now, but I often think of women who achieved when times were much more difficult. Yes, and hats off to them. It was a absolutely remarkable contributions. Now, you know, Lucinda, we are chatting because Beef 21 is on the calendar and the countdown has begun. Uh, Beef Australia would be a big part of your business. I would imagine your family business would be heading up to Beef Australia. What is your, what's your highlight? What do you go up and look forward to? Look, and in fact, I've booked, you know, hotel rooms for, um, for, for you know, three to my mom, to my two children, Brian and myself. So yes, we're um we're we're definitely um planning to come. And uh, look for me, it's always about this wonderful gathering of um, people from around the industry, um, pre and post farm gate. Then it's about going and listening to someone who really knocks your socks off in terms of their life experience. I, I always find the inspirational speakers, if, if you just listen to one or two and think, okay, what is it I've forgotten about or what is it I can learn? And then finally, um, there's just so much to see. <laughs> that can be daunting. If you're there four or five days, you eventually um, get to see the things you'd really want to see. And then there's the international visitors. Um, and, you know, there is so much. The great debate, which we love. Yes. So um, there's so much about uh, Beef Australia that that we enjoy and it's a bit of a must attend for us. Absolutely. Now, the other thing, being a beef producer and a very esteemed one, I guess, in terms of your genetics, when you are choosing a cut of beef for a family dinner, so it's not it's not a, um, you know, a friends coming over, showing off a little bit. It is a family average dinner. What is your go-to favourite cut of meat? 
boy. <laughs> I, I, I totally have a family of carnivores. So um, we've really got into brisket lately, slow-cooked brisket. I did this really delicious um, yeah, slow-cooked casserole recently and everybody adored it. Um, so, yeah, look, we love brisket. I have to say we're a bit of a Scotch fillet family. <laughs> so when we have our bull You're sales, only human. We- You're only human. <laughs> <laughs> When we have our bull sales, we uh, we make sure that the, we provide the scotch fillet for, all, for everybody who comes to sale, and that's always a great hit. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I can. I, I'm really happy with any cut, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's been a wonderful chat. Listen, to have I missed anything that you'd really like to talk about? But it's just been so wonderful to hear your breadth of knowledge. Oh, uh, look, that's a, no. I'm, I've been delighted to be able to participate. Thank you, Jane. And I look really hoping that COVID is well and truly tucked away by May next year so that we can, can you know, bring the gang up and, and, and enjoy Beef Australia as much uh, in 2021 as we did in 2018. Well, I think, you know, everyone has more than everything crossed, so it'll be, it'll be great. COVID will be well and truly gone. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.